Hey Compact Nation podcast fans, this is Emily Shields and I have a special request for you. We are busy preparing for season three. Can you believe it? And we would like to know what you think. So if you could fill out our official podcast survey, we would really appreciate it. You can find the survey at compact.org slash pod survey. Complete it by the end of July, and we will use your comments to make our podcast even better. Tell us if you like the format. Tell us who you want to interview. Tell us which have been your favorite guests. Again, that's compact.org slash pod survey between now and the end of July. Thanks. And welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. This is Emily Shields, Executive Director of Iowa Campus Compact. And I'm J.R. Jamison, Executive Director of Indiana Campus Compact. <laughs> and I'm Andrew Sellingson, President of Campus Compact. All right. So we've verified we're recording this. <laughs> we did get started one time without that happening, but it's just a little behind the scenes info for everyone. It's important that we did a dry run of our introduction. So I'm glad we had that opportunity. Uh, yeah. So, Andrew, I, in fact, know where you have recently been because you were here in Iowa. <laughs> so how was your visit? I had a fantastic visit to Iowa. I got to, as Emily knows, hang out with her board and some of her members for a conversation about future of Campus Compact and future of Campus Compact in Iowa. I got to attend your fabulous and inspiring awards ceremony, which was just great. It was, uh, I find those fun. I mean, mm-hmm. I really like award ceremonies. Uh, and just to hear about such excellent work and to see people who are so deeply committed to what they're doing and finding such satisfaction and connecting with other people. And it was really uh, pretty tremendous. I learned a lot more than I ever expected to about a town that I believe is called Makokata. Makokata. Is that right? That's right. And it was such yes. a great example of like a town that's built this deep partnership with the University of Iowa. It has a significant uh, Micronesian population for kind of coincidental reasons that date back to the early 80s and a single student coming from Iowa to Iowa State University from the Marshall Islands. And it was just so interesting to see the, the deep relationships that people have built across all kinds of differences and in, uh, for me, unexpected places and unexpected ways. Uh, and that was just one example. It was a day full of that. So that was really fun. And then getting to go over to the University of Iowa to be part of their engagement and outreach awards as well. And again, hearing just more stories, some of the same stories, because there was some overlap between <laughs> some of the people, which was kind of fun. Um, that was a very, uh, yeah, it was a terrific day in Iowa. And then I had, for me, because I used to live in the upper Midwest, a nostalgic drive from Iowa City to Madison. And I spent two days in Wisconsin with our advisory board there with uh, folks in outreach and engagement at the University of Iowa, I'm sorry, the University of Wisconsin, because now I'm in Madison, uh, and uh, then went on, and at Edgewood College in Madison, went out to Milwaukee, uh, and had a visit at Cardinal Stritch, uh, and then at Marquette, 
And it was just a really great day or a couple of days of, you know, conversations with members. Um, I happened to be at Cardinal Stritch while there was a seminar about um, kind of changes in structures of nonprofit organizations uh, with this, uh, you know, kind of outside expert who they brought in to talk about this, who's facilitated a lot of mergers of nonprofits. And given that we've been working on this network development work, it was just really well-timed for me, so a kind of fun coincidence. But it was also a way that Cardinal Stritch is um, kind of building the knowledge base for nonprofit professionals in Milwaukee. So it was also a really good example of, um, you know, sort of this work in practice. So really, uh, really great three days spent in the upper Midwest. Yeah, it was um, our awards event is my favorite day of the whole year and it did not disappoint. It's just so much fun to hear different stories and people are so excited to get to talk about what they've been doing um, in front of a larger group of people and just sometimes to find out that it's a thing. Cause I feel like sometimes we give awards to people who aren't really in our network yet. They've just been doing this without realizing that it's something people are doing in lots of different places and there's something they can be more a part of. I mean, yeah, all the people from Makokata stayed for our whole afternoon workshop and we're just, you know, people from government, just community members, they were so excited about it. And as we discussed, Makokata is a wonderful small town that actually, because of the partnership with the University of Iowa, has um, an art center downtown and and uh, has some pretty cool caves. So there's hmm. caves. <laughs> I, I need to mention two other, two other that highlights that. of my day. Well, it was three, because one was just that then I drove through Makokata, which since I didn't know where it was, I didn't know what I was going to do. So that was one. And it occurred to me that the art center was probably closed by the time I got there. But the other two highlights were, uh, one, you'll understand our listeners pretty soon, because it was hearing Kent Koth, our uh, interview subject mm-hmm. for this uh, round as the keynote speaker at Emily's awards events event, and then as the leader of a workshop. So that was great. But then the most uh, special thing about the day was meeting the parents of one oh. of <laughs> who were in attendance at the awards event. And oh, I'm jealous. Were, uh, yeah, they were terrific people and rightly very proud of their daughter. And I think excited to see all the people who Emily brings together and the great work that they are doing. So that was the <laughs> bonus of my now, I, I have only seen your parents on Instagram. So I'm a little jealous. I would like to see them in person. But I have to say, I think you look a lot like your dad. Is that true? You think I so? I do. It's, it's a weird, it's this weird thing as it always is, I think, where like, I think that sometimes too. But honestly, if you look at pictures of my mom, when she was little and me when we when I was little, you wouldn't be able to tell which was which. I will say this when uh, as I was introduced <laughs> to them and it was you know clear to me that they were Emily's parents, it was one of those things where it was like, you actually don't even have to say that. Like you see <laughs> two people, you see Emily, it's pretty clear that uh, there's some genetic This is yes. I'm I'm the mailman's daughter. I am because my dad was a mailman. Oh, wow, awesome! <laughs> but, no. For purposes of clarification, <laughs> that's so great. I I actually had the chance to attend your award ceremony a couple of years ago too, and I think your awards are beautiful. Will you talk a little bit about that? You have those specially made, right? By an oh artist? gosh! And this year it was actually really fun and kind of hysterically funny too. So we have taken to every year having. St- 
art students from one of our member institutions design the award uh, sort of statues or <laughs> trophies, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> that that go that are given to people. So rather than, I mean, the sort of generic acrylic things you can get kind of anywhere. Something that demonstrates our values and that it's a, you know, it's a it's an experience for students. It's unique. It's creative. So this year we worked with uh, an art instructor at the University of Northern Iowa called Dan Perry and his students, including uh, Monica Vandra, and they made these incredible awards. It, were, it was like acrylic but layers of acrylic that from the side looked like a staircase and kind of made our logo um, on this base. The thing that became clear early on in the ceremony and kind of funny is that they were quite heavy. Oh. <laughs> so as the awardees came up to get them and they were all kind of like oh you know about like having to carry it up to the podium and and that kind of thing but it was fun I think the audience got into to that as a fun thing but yeah that's an added element that I think is cool because then you not you know you have this thing commemorating an award you got but you also really have a unique art piece and they've been different every year that we've done that we've done it before with University University also in Iowa and and the it, it always is also is this thing where, you know, it's being designed and made somewhere else in the state and it's on a, on like a student schedule. So I typically don't see them at, in person until the award ceremony is like about to start. So there's like some faith involved as well. Surprise. It's yeah, it's fun. Um, but I was, yeah, it was a great day. JR, what have you been up to? Well, I have been up to lots of things. <laughs> I'm not prepared to answer that question other than to say, I know I've been really busy with meetings. We're preparing for our big staff retreat next week. Oh. Uh, so that's always, it's two days that we're digging into our planning. Uh, but also we, we here in Indiana have a partnership with the Lilly Endowment. And so part of that is planning out uh, our programs with them and such. And so uh, the preparation for that two-day staff retreat takes quite a bit of time. So that's kind of the headspace that I'm in right now. Is it like trust falls and... It is. We do like ropes courses and trust falls and um, shaming. No, I'm just kidding. We don't do any of those things other than... Is shaming uh, <laughs> a thing people do at staff retreats? Why? <laughs> the ropes courses and trust falls for some of us just appear to be modes of shame. Okay. Isn't that what those are about really? Yeah, so shame, 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 shame. Are you doing like a Game of Thrones style walk? As yeah. a part of this, I mean, the idea is like to create opportunities for all types of learners, right? So we need, you know, those who need hands-on experiences and those who need more of like a lecture. So it's designed in that way. No, honestly, and those who need shaming is this where we're going with this? That's the lecture. No, I'm kidding. Oh. Uh, no, it's uh, seriously, it's a fun time where we get together. There's no trust falls lectures or any of that, but it's really, uh, you know, anytime you say retreat, that means we're planning. Uh, and there's not a lot of retreaty part other than we do a pitch-in. So it's kind of a fun time for us to share our culinary skills with one another uh, and just take a little time away from the office and enjoy Wait, what, you do a what? What was that word? A, a pitch-in. Like a potluck? Yes, a pitch-in. Is that what you call it in India? Yes. I mean, is it like you're all cooking together or you all bring a dish? We all bring a dish. That's what a pitch-in is. That's what a potluck is. <laughs> yeah, I think... 
So, you know, when I lived in Minnesota, I learned two things that um, I didn't know before. So one is that, as I think now many people in the country know, you know, in Minnesota, a casserole is called a hot dish. Ew. And there's, no, I didn't you know, know that. Oh, yeah. What's ew about a hot dish? <laughs> that was gross. Uh, well, it's, and then, you know, there are very strong beliefs in different parts of the state about what are the essential components of a hot dish and what are unacceptable components in a hot dish. So in some, you know, some counties, it needs to have a can of mushroom soup. In others, it has to have those uh, fake onion things that come in a can. You know those. Oh, un- oh, you know what yeah. I mean? Oh yeah, like uh, green both. Beans. I'm I'm in favor of both. Yeah, I, I yeah. yeah, and uh, right, green beans, no green beans. There's all these things. So that's hot dish. The other thing that I think is less well known because I feel like the hot dish thing might have shown up in Fargo or whatever and got some Cone Brothers style, you know, promotion. But so the game that I grew up calling Duck Duck Goose. We've had lengthy debates about this in my office because I do have a resident Minnesotan. Yes. And duck, duck, gray duck is ridiculous. That is what it is in Minnesota. And the first time I heard that, I definitely thought they were putting me on. Like, let's see if we can get the gullible New Yorker to believe that we play a game called duck, duck, gray duck. And then by the looks on their faces, I realized they were not kidding. That is really what they call that game. They feel strongly about it, too. Yeah. For some reason. I don't even know where I'm from anymore. (laughs) Like, I've never heard that in my life. Yeah. Oh, no, that's really, that's like a- That's a, just Minnesota. Yeah, that's just kept within the the, the borders of Minnesota. I'm, I feel like you can be penalized for even talking about it outside the state if you're a Minnesotan. Somehow they've kept that on lockdown. Well, since I'm temporarily uh, helping to lead Minnesota Campus Compact, I feel like I should be embracing Duck Duck Great yeah, Duck. So just kidding. Let's delete that. I yeah. love Duck Duck Great Duck. Yeah, you're it definitely makes more sense that it's I a Great Duck. The next board meeting where the board is playing duck, duck, gray duck around the conference table. I think that will be good. I'll all be prepared. With, all with your potlucks prepared hot dishes. Yeah. Our, our pitch-in. Yeah, That's the greatest. I seriously have never heard that. It actually makes more sense makes than potluck. Sense. But yeah, I've, I've heard potluck, but typically in the terms like, oh, yeah, you know, like I'm going to this campus compact conference and I'm going to room with so and so because we're like potluck rooming together. You've never heard that. <laughs> that, that sounds like somebody who's only vaguely familiar with the term. <laughs> Is it really clear? Or no, no, no. Like, like when you're assigned somebody, potluck, right. I mean, you know. So like. Yeah. No, that's not a thing. I don't know what you're talking about. Now I can picture it's like two people sitting in like casserole dishes. Yeah. That's most, most campus compact conferences, we house people in large cookware. <laughs> that's that's well, it, because we get a better rate on that if you're like, trying to save a buck yeah you know yeah hotel potluck style sleeping arrangements put you in a big casserole sure. dish that saves us money uh well here's the thing i'm going to say i think pitch-in is a good term and i i am interested in finding out whether it's just in the state of indiana that it's used 
because I've never heard that before for that. I've heard, obviously. Yeah, I don't. So tweet us, hashtag Compact Nation yes, pod. Do you call it a pigeon or a potluck or, or something else? Yeah. Yes, and all my fellow Hoosiers in Indiana, please back me up on this. I also it's going to turn out that no <laughs> one's heard of pigeon before yeah, anywhere. No one's heard of it. Your staff won't even know to bring food. Your, staff Your whole staff just there. hasn't been saying anything. They're like, I, I don't know we don't what know what that is. Talking. We'll bring food, I guess. Yeah, because we'll be hungry, but I don't know what he's talking about. I want to say one thing before we move on, though, uh, because I feel like this is a deep uh, kind of conundrum, not a conundrum, but a divide in, in human society that I think relates to a lot of other important things, which is I feel like if you're going to call it a potluck, then you can't spend any time establishing who is going to bring what. You tell everyone it's a potluck and they bring what they're going to bring. That's the word luck. That's the point about luck that's in the potluck. And if you're going to structure it with like a sign-up sheet and stuff, that's just a group dinner where people are bringing dishes. That's not a pitch in. It's a pitch in. It is a pitch in, but it's not a potluck. There's no luck involved. And And the nature of a potluck is you might end up with seven desserts and nothing else. And that's life and that's luck and you deal with it and you work together and you're all happy in the end. And mm, I, I think Iowans are just too serious about their food to take those kind of chances. <laughs> so in Indiana, we call that a white elephant lunch. You do not. <laughs> now you're just making things up. <laughs> that is not true. That one, I, that is made up. That last one, everything oh else God. I have said is absolutely true. I can't, I can't believe JR has been gaslighting us repeatedly. About, and now I don't know what to believe. I just. No, the only, the only thing, the only thing I made up was the white elephant. Lunch. The everything trust falls. He told true. us about trust falls. Oh, well, yeah, kind of. But that was just for fun. Oh, boy. All right. We better get to our interview before we, you know, well, stumble like down any other rabbit holes. Place-based. <laughs> place-based rabbit hole. Yes. Well, that's okay. Way to draw the connection. Yes. So um, I had the chance this week to interview Kent Coase because he was here in Iowa when I interviewed him. He came here to be the keynote speaker of our awards and summit. So he gave a keynote and then he led a workshop that afternoon. And his work is place-based where, you know, knowing what to call a semi-organized group meal is, I would imagine, important. Um, So it definitely fits. Uh, So he was the found, is the founding director of the Seattle University Center for Community Engagement, um, which has expanded quite a bit, including since 2009, he's directed the Seattle University Youth Initiative, um, where they have faculty, staff, and students from all disciplines joining with parents, the Seattle School District, the City of Seattle Foundations, more than 30 community organizations, um, to really focus on several local neighborhoods and providing a pathway of support for kids to succeed in school and in life. So, Seattle University has a very specific place-based initiative um, within some some school boundaries right next to their campus. Uh, So not only has Kent you know, done that work on a campus and has pretty significant leadership role there. But then he's also moved into doing more research around place-based engagement in general. So he and a colleague, um, Erica Yamamura, have written a book, which should be coming out about the same time as this podcast 
podcast episode. Um, it's published by Stylus and it's called Place-Based Community Engagement in Higher Education, Obligatory Colon, A Strategy to Transform Universities and Communities. Um, I'm really excited about it because I saw him present at our national conference. I've now seen him do this keynote and um, and this uh, workshop here in Iowa. And they've created an interesting framework for kind of the phases that they've seen campuses go through when they're looking at place-based initiatives. And when Kent was here, we did a panel of three different of those types of initiatives on Iowa campuses, three very different types at very different stages. And as he was talking, I could really see where each of them were. And it was um, just an interesting way of thinking about it. And we've had a lot of, you know, we have campuses focused on rural communities across the state, very specific neighborhoods, um, entire communities, lots of different things. And, and there's been a, a lot of interest in that. Um, and it was good to have Kent here because he actually is originally from Iowa, got his undergraduate degree at Grinnell College here. There were a lot of other Grinnell College folks at our, at our event, so that was good. Um, so yeah, let's go right to that interview and then bring it back. So Kent Cope, welcome to the Compact Nation podcast. Thanks for joining us today. You are in Iowa with me today because um, on Wednesday, you're the keynote speaker for our awards event and you are from here. So well, what's your Iowa connection it's, for folks? It's good to be back in Iowa. I grew up in Iowa in a number of different small towns, um, nice. but my mom lives in West Des Moines now. Yeah, so we're, back. we're excited to have you. Always excited to bring natives back to the state, um, then try to keep them. So right. people might try to get their hooks in you. Yeah. Just be aware of that. Um, so, you know, you're giving your keynote and you have a book coming out that we plugged going into this. What does place-based engagement actually mean? Yeah, I think place-based engagement is a, um, a newer way of thinking about our work in terms of connecting campuses and communities and in particular focused on a geographic area, often a neighborhood. Um, and I think the other key elements of what a place-based approach might be would be focusing more equally on the engagement of campus, college students and faculty and the impact in the community and thinking institution-wide um, in terms of the capabilities of an entire university partnering with intensely with a local neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So what, why does that matter? What is that, what do you think that adds or why might it be important for a campus to consider that kind of an approach? From, I guess my observations working at several different institutions over a number of years is that our field of community engagement in higher education leans more towards the learning of college students mm-hmm. and, um, and we talk about community impact but it's often a secondary consideration. And right. so it's, sometimes I talk about it as the 80-20 mix or the 90-10 mix in terms of where we emphasize our, mm-hmm. our work. And I think of uh, place-based work as moving that a bit more towards, or a significant um, direction towards more of a 50-50 focus. And there's a lot more I think we can learn about ourselves and our institutions when we're consistently involved in one geographic yeah. area. Well, give us a concrete example of that. What's a, what's an example of either your institution or yeah. another institution you've studied 
where where a place-based initiative has given that 50-50 split, what does that actually look like? So in the book, we describe several different institutions, uh, but I mean, I can, I'm most familiar with my own institution. Sure. Yeah. So at Seattle U, 10 years ago, we made a decision to start focusing on a neighborhood. We did a planning process, and then about eight years ago, launched um, okay. this focus. But what it looks like is... Uh, intensive partnerships in the local schools, a staff person that's serving in our local elementary school and another university staff person in a middle school. And and the third grade reading scores and the fourth grade math okay. scores and attendance in school are just as important as what our college students are learning. Okay. So it's working with our neighborhood partners to take it seriously, the metrics, um, and using kind of data to measure what we can see and, and how we can chart change over time. Okay, so what would how do you how what how do you understand the role that your university plays in in moving that needle? So third grade reading, yeah. you know, I'd imagine what the university is doing is not the only thing happening yeah. in that area. So is it enough? for your purposes to understand that it's moving and we're contributing something to that? Or are you able to kind of go a level deeper and understand your actual impact? At the overall level of like third grade reading scores, it's it's very difficult to look at yeah. cause and effect in terms of university's influence and things moving because we're looking at a collective impact right. approach with multiple different community partners. In our case, we partner with the school, but we also are working with summer learning programs and extended learning programs that are nonprofits in the neighborhood and um, programs that are working with preschoolers. And and it's stitching all those organizations together to be in communication with each other. Uh, Organizations don't often think like a neighborhood. Um, They think of their own mission of the developmental point of a child's life or particular issues. Right. So it's thinking of trying to get them to work together program levels, so we run an after-school program at the elementary school, we can look at, we can correlate cause and effect there. Okay. But on a more macro level, um, I think we just believe in the concept of collective impact and if things are moving in the right direction in terms of the data, it's a shared success. Yeah, yeah. Just as it's not moving in the right direction. So, yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. I think one of the hang-ups that, you know, when I'm talking to campuses that they have is how, how could we possibly measure our impact when we're just a part of this bigger puzzle? But if you at least can understand the bigger puzzle and be a part of that conversation about what that impact is, that yeah. would be a step in the right direction. And like you said, be willing to change what you're doing yeah. based on what the, that data shows. So in your book, you look at several case studies and really dive into this. What to you was the most interesting sort of finding from that work? Um, Several different findings. One thing is to look at the the evolution of place-based work as an institution starts to think about exploring it and then kind of what are the phases they move through. We saw clear phases of the five institutions that we profiled from an exploration phase. Should we do this? What neighborhood would we focus on? Mm-hmm. Um, what, what's the, is there a focus on education or housing or economic opportunity? To a phase that is then the launching phase, we call it the developmental phase, where there's a lot of experimentation and um, quick, quick uh, wins and quick failures and then moving yeah. on. And also the exploration of how to do some restructuring of how the university system is set up to engage to eventually the sustaining phase where there there's more um, consistency and moving towards um, a long-term commitment that can be sustained over time but I think 
uh, probably one of the more interesting aspects was almost universally between the five universities was what we have uh, began to see as a virtuous cycle okay. where working with uh, young people in the neighborhood, elementary, middle school, high school students, those students end up coming to the institution, becoming involved in the neighborhood and leading oh, okay. their peers. They graduate and they end up then working back and with nonprofits and as teachers in the neighborhood. And it, it becomes sort of a cycle of yeah. connection, which um, for a couple of the institutions that have been at this for a long time, we saw that very clearly. Interesting. Yeah, that certainly is a strong impact. What? Um, so you mentioned failings, and yeah. there are certainly going to be pitfalls. What? What have you seen, and what? Um, what do those failures teach us? Yeah. Um, so some different, um, in general, sort of examples of failing is um, the the university or the college pursuing something that seems to make sense. Um, in our case, we piloted helping basically running an early learning program uh, preschool and we realized that's not the business that we're that we're the best at okay so we found another partner to do that so it's it's always evaluating what is your skill set and what's your resource space and or and what can you um, pursue there and i i think for us and for our the other institutions that we're looking at it's how how to experiment quickly and then make a decision like this didn't work right. and, and admit that and work with partners to circle back and say collectively making a decision that this didn't work and then shifting um, to what trying something new yeah yeah how does that collective decision making actually happen so it seems with these types of initiatives that that community voice yeah. that power balance is even more important yeah um, how do you actually make that happen in a real way uh, to me, that's the that's the excitement and the challenge okay. of this work, uh, which is focusing on a place, on a neighborhood, and in doing that, it's it's not just folk, it's not just a partnership with an organization. It's residents and community leaders and organizations, and the process then of trying to bring together all those voices. And then the university can play a convening role or connecting role. In some cases, there are the, of the institutions we were looking at, there were other institutions that were playing that convening role. But regardless, it's it's the process of collectively looking at data, um, what's the data telling us, thinking through what's our next steps, how do we continually communicate with each other around our strategies, mm -hmm. making sure that each organization is pursuing a, a commitments that complement each other and are competing against each other overlapping too much okay um, but it's uh, complicated and messy and but also I think perhaps more effective than our our current approaches how do you deal with um, changes in people in organizations as they occur over time so I imagine you know you get to that sustaining phase things are great but then the university gets a new president yeah. you move back to Iowa right. <laughs> Yeah, so. um, you know, the, the biggest the school system gets a new superintendent. Since we should point out that it's about 70 degrees up today. And it's humidity, perfect and beautiful. The humidity is about 30%, so <laughs> that's a nice day to think about moving back to Iowa. Uh, I, the, the, the constantness of change, mm -hmm. and um, particularly around leadership, that's another uh, thing that we discovered in the book, is the, the role of uh, leadership in launching and in developing initiatives. Um, presidential leadership, uh, leadership of on campus in terms of guiding the efforts. If it's partner, if there's a partnership with a school, the role of the principal, 
Uh, we have a major partnership with the housing authority and the role of folks in the housing authority and also residents, um, the mm-hmm. resident voice. And in some cases, when a resident leaves uh, the neighborhood, it, it's a challenge. It, if there are multiple different partners and multiple different voices that are in the mix, when one person leaves, um, there's an ability to try to continue right. to move forward. Right. When something becomes depend, too, too dependent on one person, it's a bit more challenging. So I think the, the efforts that we've seen have been um, when there's multiple leaders. There also, I think, is something we said for the uh, duration of leadership um, in terms of the presidents that, of the different institutions we were looking at and their staying power and community leaders as well. The most successful, I think, entities have a little bit more stability. Oh, okay. So they didn't see those big shifts, at least in the developmental phases. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Oh, they have been just thinking of something else, and now I can't remember what it was. Oh, how have you, so we've talked about kind of the school system, nonprofits, I imagine, university. Does the business, have you seen the role that the Mm -hmm. business community plays Mm -hmm. um, that works well and helps build that support? Yeah. Uh, There are several different examples of, um, business schools mm-hmm. within the university. So thinking also of place space as a university-wide effort and how can different colleges and schools within a larger university be a partner in place space. Mm-hmm. Business schools have been able to play a role in particularly in supporting small businesses, small family-owned businesses that might be vulnerable to the economic changes and supporting those businesses and thinking about a business plan or marketing plan or accounting yeah. practices. There also are some um, more recently, with the new tax act, there is uh, an opportunity zone uh, right. proposal. It's uh, okay. within that, and so it is, which which could lead to the investment of funds that then go to organizations in the neighborhood. And I think a, a university, a business school, and others could play a role in thinking through what's the structure of those investments so they have social impact. Okay. So there's, there's, it is, it's that's the creativity of thinking of a whole institution and not just certain departments. Yeah. And how about like business leaders in the community? Or I mean, have they gotten on board, yeah. funded things, yeah. Yeah. you know, a, supported it, or is that kind of not where things are yet potentially? The um, experiences that of the institutions that we looked at in the book, and then mm-hmm. I guess describing even CLLU in more detail, in as an institution thinks of what role it can play in a neighborhood and pursuing more impact with goals set out for often what we've seen um, for people in the corporate world who are wanting to see change occur in a neighborhood. They trust the university mm-hmm. uh, in terms of what the university can do, and they're impressed with the boldness of the vision in terms of partnership. So for us, it's led to investments from okay. dis- different business leaders. And it's it's if I were thinking of what are the benefits of place-based engagement, it can be an attractor of new dollars to the university because of this very focused approach to okay. uh, a neighborhood-based approach. So how are you situated as a leader at Seattle University? Where you how what what specifically does your role look look like? Because I know one of the other things you've worked on is just sort of elevating that role of um, leader in community engagement efforts. What does that look like for you, and and what do you think that could look like for the field? So for my role, uh, and our center has grown and changed over time, but as we've ended up moving towards a place based uh, focus. 
I report to our um, office of our provost, so we're an academic affairs okay. um, part of our university. But more and more of my work is fund development and strategy, both internal and external. Okay. Uh, strategy with the school district, strategy with the city of Seattle, um, thinking of how our work fits within a strategic plan of the university, thinking about how potential significant donors to the university could might might uh, entice them to look at this um, approach. So um, it's, it is less of a day-to-day running of programs and more of a um, external and internal strategy um, role. Okay. And, and working with our deans of different colleges and schools and the people in our fund development office, which has been, it's exciting because I think that's where the, it can affect the entire institution at yeah. that level. Yeah, that's exciting. Um, other practical wisdom. So if I'm in Iowa or um, Florida or you know yeah. anywhere else, um, I'm sitting on a campus where I see that this institution-wide anchor um, play space, whatever you know, could have value, but I'm not. I don't feel positioned to make that happen. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we support people moving in this direction? Uh, what can individuals do? What's your advice? Uh, I think to position an effort that could then become a place-based um, mm-hmm. approach is strong partnerships, engagement of faculty, uh, engagement of students, coordination and organizing of community partners, mm-hmm. with community partners requesting more from the university um, and, and trying and speaking more with one voice can lead to conversations then with executive leaders of a university, whether it's the president or provost or others. Interesting, yeah, um, that makes sense. And then the other thing I would say um, of a consideration which is significant um, and I think timely for our institutions is that in focusing on a place, um, it moves beyond a transactional relationship with an organization. It often leads to conversations, much more uh, deep conversations around race and classism and issues of immigration and because it is, yeah. it's looking at the history of a neighborhood and the issues in the neighborhood, right? And not just the issues of an organization, and that has um, that leads to invitations to change on campus and think more deeply and expansively about those issues. Interesting. Okay. So where can people find this book? So the book is coming out. Um, by, it's being published by Stylus. Um, mm-hmm. And it's out in June. Um, the Stylus website has information about it. We're excited about it. Um, hope that people take a look and um, and realizing one actually one other um, observation is there's not one approach to right. a place-based right. um, strategy. There are it depends significantly on the context of an institution, the context of neighborhood. Yep. Maria College is a good example. They're working in um, rural Kentucky. And Drexel's another good example. They're working in Philadelphia, very, very different contexts, which leads to different models. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's there. It's it's great to have a framework, to have a way of thinking about things, language for it. But I've seen that too, just with the civic action plans. That you really you have to have a good understanding of what the needs are, where you are, what your campus is interested in and capable of, yeah. um, and you know, take these broad ideas and make them fit. You bring up the civic action plans. I think civic action plans also then are, can be a way of exploring whether a place-based approach or whether mm-hmm. uh, utilizing the anchor mission strategy. There's 
the civic action plans because they're encouraging the uh, university-wide thinking, I think are a good invitation to explore. Absolutely. Well, thanks for coming on, Ken. Thanks. Thanks for coming to Iowa. Yeah. Well, All right. we've got um, two more days to convince you to move yeah. back. Okay. <laughs> so, challenge accepted. Goes. All right. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much. So welcome back, everyone. Um, what do you guys think about my quest to uh, get Kent to move back to Iowa? Do what, what are my chances, do you think? Well, um, I would say, as in the old saying, uh, I think your chances are slim and none, and slim just got on the bus. <laughs> yeah, I, I would say negative. I mean, even <laughs> though... I love Iowa. I've said this before. I think as do I. I'm on the record. And it was a beautiful day. He mentioned it was like 70, low humidity. Perfect. However, we all know what the Midwest is like in the summertime, come July, versus Seattle, and so the humidity will be way different. So I would say he would not want to move back to Iowa Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. midsummer or in the winter. Fine. What did you think about what he had to say then? <laughs> I didn't hear him say anything particularly about Iowa that he loved. No, I'm just kidding. He did say that he loved Iowa. We're not talking about that. I just mean, what do you think? What did you think about what he had to say in general? I'm dropping the Iowa conversation. I want no more of your opinions about whether people want to move to Iowa. Well, true. Well, so I will say I enjoyed everything he said, uh, and I, I'm looking forward to reading the book when it does come out. It reminded me that so much of our work we do across the spectrum is all relational, and it's all about relationship building. And when I think about place-based work, it really does depend on the size of the community. He mentioned the history, the historical context there. And so I think about two of our institutions here in Indiana that are doing place-based work, but in different ways. So IUPUI is a perfect example of a large metropolitan um, institution in the heart of Indianapolis, where as that institution grew in the 1970s, they took over land, acquired land around the institution and displaced people, or we can say gentrification if we want, took place as well. Um, But they've done a lot to repair the damage that's happened. And they've made a focus on the near West Side neighborhood uh, beginning really in the late 90s and have built that relationship over time, much like Kent was talking about, mm-hmm. uh, with staff members being placed in schools, focusing on, the, focusing on the educational component, working with the community in a 50-50 exchange, looking at um, community gardens uh, to address food deserts and such. So that's an example of focusing on one neighborhood. And then it reminded me of my alma mater, Ball State University, Chirp Chirp, anyway, uh, where <laughs> we won't get into that. But... Uh, uh, where they actually, uh, because of the community, is a smaller town, mostly a, what was a blue-collar factory community. That has changed over time. The university being in the middle of that, they decided to take a community-wide approach, and they could do that because of the size of the city. And what they did is looking at building better neighborhoods, and they worked with uh, neighborhood coalitions that were already in place and had staff members placed in each of those and then working with those coalitions to create um, spaces where there are those 50-50 partnerships citywide that is place-based. So those are two examples, I think, looking at mm-hmm. a historical context of the community, but also size, right, and, and placement of that. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, I think it's interesting, the, and I'm, I'm now um, unable to distinguish in my mind things Kent said during the workshop that you held uh, in Iowa last weekend, things Kent said in the interview. So I was just thinking the same thing. Yeah, so I may be referring to things he did or did not say in, in this recorded conversation, but I know he said them. Um, you know, I think there's so many complicated choices to make when one undertakes this kind of work. And that's kind of what I was thinking about when, um, you know, when I was working at Rutgers Camden, we were uh, quite place-based in our focus, but the question of how you define the geography of the place where you are going to focus. And one of the things he talked about, again, I think this was in the workshop, was that when they put sort of the boundaries around the area they were going to focus on, it wasn't really a single neighborhood. Um, it was a catchment area of a school mm-hmm. and that made the most sense, but it also meant there was some arbitrariness in kind of where they were working and where they weren't because those lines didn't track natural neighborhood boundaries. And, you know, for us at Rutgers Camden, we really couldn't say we're just working with this neighborhood, even though we did have a particular neighborhood very close to the campus where we had a kind of extra special focus. But it's a public university in a city, in a state. Uh, it would have, it didn't seem like it would be consistent with the broader mission to define sort of hard boundaries for the work. Um, so I think that's, you know, one of the things. I, the other thing, which I think I've talked about on the podcast maybe before, but we also heard from communities that were immigrant communities in the neighborhood we were working with that they were really interested in taking advantage of faculty capacity to connect projects to the communities they came from in other countries where they still had strong relationships, in many cases, family ties. And of course, we had many faculty who had the relevant kinds of international interests and public health focus and other areas. And so the place-based focus led to other place connections. Um, and so I, I think it's just interesting. And again, the only way to kind of work all that stuff out is in dialogue and in communication and requires building a lot of trust. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think it's like, it's a starting point to think we'd like to do place-based work. And then there's an enormous amount that, that kind of happens along the way to figuring out what that means in practice. Yeah, I, one of the most interesting things that he said, again, in one of those menus, so we'll just maybe share new information, I'm not sure. Um, And I've seen this come up on campuses, people feeling like that being place-based would mean that that's exclusively what you do. And what he said and what they found is it's, it's of course not. I mean, you might have a faculty member interested in a specific, um, type of work or research that isn't in that neighborhood or a student organization with a partnership elsewhere, those things will still happen. And that's great. It's more about where are you spending most of your time and focus and energy and and working to direct resources and building interdisciplinary partnerships very intentionally and that kind of thing. And so I think that eases some of the concern that it would be this rigid framework where you couldn't do anything else. I think one of my other favorite things that he talks a lot about is just like failing and learning from that. And one of the things about a place-based initiative with me is that it is this longer term commitment. So you're saying we're, we're committed to this place and we're going to figure out over time what that looks like. And so if we try a thing like that, he talked about trying an, uh, an early childhood program, I think it was, 
that didn't work. It wasn't a good space for them to be in. It, it wasn't. And then they could just continue working with that community and neighborhood and try other things. And I think that's really interesting because it's something that comes up a lot in the faculty development I do. The failures are going to happen. We just had um, a faculty institute this week. Some of the faculty who did it last year came back. One of them, their project completely fell apart. But it was great because they learned so much from that. Their students learned a lot from that. Like it wasn't a failure in terms of learning. Um, and I think that's that's usually the case. And I like opportunities where that can happen. Mm-hmm. I think one of the complexities is to ensure that that learning is is also equally or re- fairly distributed, right? That mm-hmm. sometimes like there's a lot of learning that's happened by universities and their people that is like, yeah, there was a failure. The failure meant that the things that the neighborhood got into it for didn't happen, but people in the university learned a lot from that. And so I think structuring the project, you know, whatever you're doing so that the learning is shared, but also there's commitment to move forward to apply that learning in ways that do benefit right. the neighborhood. Um, and that's what the longer term commitment allows and enables. Uh, and if it's made evident through all sorts of other things you're doing that you're serious about that. Yeah. And yeah. People will give you some slack when something doesn't work correctly, but if it's like a single standalone project and it doesn't work, it's very high stakes and can just produce a lot of damage in relationships for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it might mean you just stop working with that organization or they want to stop working with the university. And if it's a more, you know, like you're saying, longer term community wide effort, it may be that people actually, that the partnership improves because of the failure rather than just making it crash and burn. Mm-hmm. I also appreciated, though, how he talked about how we need to get away from organizational thinking yeah. and make it more about neighborhood thinking. Because if we really place ourselves still in the organizational framework of I represent this org and these are my goals, of course, we'll come in with goals. We all do, right? But it has to be a shared system. So if we think about this as a neighborhood approach and we are a part of that neighborhood, then we can have broader discussions about race and class, et cetera, that sometimes doesn't come out when we focus just on organizational organizational. So I really appreciated um, his approach to that and his discussion around that mindset. I think so too. And, and, and one thing we know is that when, or when conversations and planning are only happening at an organizational level, they are usually not very diverse conversations mm-hmm. because the people who run organizations, right, mm-hmm. are going to tend to be more white, more privileged, more affluent. When you actually involve people who just live live in the community and lead in different ways that aren't their official job, it's harder, but it makes for much more diverse conversations and better outcomes, I think. And, and again, I think that's something you can, that fits more naturally with a place-based effort because you'll have a lot of people invested in that place for different reasons. Mm-hmm. The other thing this made me think about was the the role of community engagement professionals in driving this work forward. And, you know, I know you, Emily, had the conversation about, you know, part of it was about how do you ensure the continuity of these programs when personnel changes and how do you get these things going in the first place? And I was thinking about the fact that um, I generally appreciate people who, you know, think of their job description as kind of, 
naming a set of values and some possible ways to advance those values, but not sort of placing boundaries around your work. And I think very often these kinds of initiatives come from people uh, thinking about what would actually be an effective way to do the things they were hired to do and to say, we need to be doing this work and let's engage in the conversations with partners about the possibilities rather than saying, well, I was not hired to do that. So I guess I'm not going to do that because nobody was hired to do these things if they haven't already been marked as strategies. Uh, but people get them started. And I realize it's not in every work context that you can do that. Sometimes there just isn't the freedom. So it's no knock on people who aren't in position that way. But I think like when I'm hiring somebody, I love to hear stories that where people say, here's what the real goals were. And I recognize that the way we were set up to do it wasn't going to get it done. And so we started thinking differently about how we were doing the work. Yeah, and I think, and we didn't talk about this a ton, but I know some of Kent's other work is just around thinking about how it, how do you elevate the community engagement professional role, because he's really at a leadership level at Seattle University, and I think that has meant he has been empowered to make those kinds of decisions and think about things in that way, and I think that's really important, and um and I'll be interested in reading the book because I would like to know more about what roles individual people can play. Like one of the most interesting things is that they've looked at these catalyzing moments and catalyzing situations. And sometimes it is a person, you know, a president or someone who comes in and says, this is what we're going to do and really pushes it. Sometimes it's a thing that happens, kind of an external pressure. Sometimes it's something the community says, that kind of thing. Um, and I think that's really interesting to, to dive into and for people not to just, uh, not to wait for the moment to happen to them, but to think about ways they could make that happen to kind of push things to the next level. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if his book could be a companion piece to your book, Emily, Diving Deep. Yeah, and I think Lena Distilio's work, I mean, I know they work closely together. Like, I think they really go hand in hand because a strong place-based effort has to have strong convening leadership that is really able to play that backbone role. That's often what it seems, the role it seems the um, college or university is playing is really being that backbone in a collective impact model. And that depends very much on having a leader in that role with the right skills and abilities. Hmm. Yeah, I think they're hard to separate. Mm -hmm. Do you guys want to move on to talking about some resources? Sure. That's good. Okay. I have one that I hope I haven't talked about before, and I don't think I have. Um, but as I am now working more closely with Minnesota, I get to learn even more about the great work happening there. And one thing is on the Minnesota Campus Compact website, you can find a set of resources for civic leadership development. There are a set of, I'm not even sure how many, but it's got to be at least 30 or so different um, workshop exercises that help students or others think about building their civic agency. So they're kind of, they're divided into three theme areas. There's self, us, and now. So depending on the types of things you want to have people reflecting on, I have been using these in the faculty institutes that I lead um, I've been picking one of the activities to do with faculty members. We just did one yesterday around asset-based community development that was really interesting. Um, 
and then presenting these to faculty members as something they can use in their classroom or thinking about how do I help students develop civic agency as a part of this community engagement experience. So yes, we're learning, you know, the course outcomes, we're learning about this community agency, we're learning about this issue, we're building new skills, but many faculty, I think, want to also translate that to um, students having a larger understanding of their place in the world and how they can make social change and things like that. And these activities are really designed to do different elements of that. So I would just point to it as a great resource at mncampuscompact.org under their resources uh, for civic leadership development. I mean, they're great. You could just take it and run with it. It walks you through how to lead the workshop, how to lead the exercise. So again, it's another easy way to add some elements like this to your course without having to spend a lot of time developing that yourself. And they've pulled some from some really great um, other materials and resources for that. So I would just put a big plug in for that. Awesome. Who wants to go next? Well, I will say that my resource I definitely did share in season one, but I want to reshare again because it relates to place-based engagement. So if you listen to season one, you may remember at one point that I talked about a book called Love Where You Live by Peter Kageyama, where he talks about adding the fun to your community through partnerships. And uh, when I talked about this resource, I talked about it because Peter was coming to our community to give a talk around his book. But since that time, our community in collaboration with Ball State University has began to look at how do we use the fun in placemaking. And one thing that came out of that is between Ball State and the downtown, which is going undergoing revitalization, there's great growth there. Um, they did a bridge dinner, which really is exciting because when we think about place-based engagement, sometimes we think about um, working on tough issues, but we don't often think about the fun that can come through community art. Uh, and so one thing that, that came out of that with our community is we decided to use the uh, Washington Street Bridge, which is the connector between campus and the downtown area, as a dinner. And uh, we had a bridge dinner that happened in April and that was now does that mean you ate the bridge Um, or was it a pitch-in on the bridge it was not it was not a (laughs) pitch-in so uh it it was a um like a like buffet style food Are you familiar with that term? <laughs> I'm familiar with a buffet. Yes. <laughs> uh, that's a university term. Yeah. No, so it was in that style. Uh, but there were just long tables. But there were bands playing. And you could bring your pets. And people were just milling around. And it was just a good time to see people come out from all the area uh, neighborhoods. But also from the university. To enjoy each other's company on a late spring day. On a bridge that connects our downtown with our universities. So that's an example of placemaking with fun in mind. I'm a fan of fun. Mm -hmm. I like fun. I am too. Nothing wrong with fun. Mm -hmm. I feel like Andrew is less of a fan of fun. So go ahead and share your resource, Andrew. Uh, I'm a a fan of a kind of stifling level of seriousness (laughs) uh, that really crushes the spirit. That's that's just what I, you know, it's what I'm into. So. <laughs> to each his own, etc. cetera. Um, all right. The resource I would like to share is 
on the topic of cultivating environments on campuses where there is lively discussion of public issues with a variety of perspectives represented. So we've talked about this in a whole bunch of contexts, and I think both on campus, off campus, that's a thing people are thinking a lot about in the U.S. right now. And so the particular thing I'm going to talk about is a product of a larger effort called Heterodox Academy. So this is an effort um, led by Jonathan Haidt, who's a professor at the Stern School of Business at NYU and others. Jonathan Haidt is a, a social psychologist who best known for a book called The Righteous Mind. But he's done a ton of research with a range of colleagues on the question of what is it that leads people to be open to listen to and take seriously viewpoints that diverge from their own? And how can you actually cultivate that, uh, that openness in a, a practical way? And so Heterodox Academy, that's kind of its larger effort is to promote viewpoint diversity within institutions and in kind of the academic community more generally. But they, they're now beginning, I think, the best way to describe it is to spin off some standalone projects that can help uh, serve this larger purpose. And one of them is called uh, Open Mind. And you can find it online at, I think it's openmindplatform.org. Yeah, it's one word, openmindplatform.org. And it is a tool that is, I think there's both, I think there's a version that's like usable from a smartphone as an app, and you can also um, just do it straight up on a computer as a, through the website. And it's a tool that is a kind of um, introduction to how to kind of position oneself to be open to taking seriously diverse viewpoints and to kind of have some mechanisms, some vocabulary for ensuring that that's happening. And so they've designed it, you know, I think their ideal use would be, for example, for all new students at a university during orientation to use this tool. It's like, takes about an hour and a quarter to do the whole thing. It's broken up into several segments and it's a kind of preparation for engagement. And mm -hmm. so we had a chance to meet here in our offices with one of the co-directors directors of the project, a guy named Rafi Grinberg, who kind of talked us through it and explained what, what they're up to. And we have, uh, are just kind of in the beginning stages of a conversation about how Campus Compact can work with the, the developer developers of the Open Mind platform to engage colleges and universities and kind of testing out this tool and seeing how it works. But I think, you know, the the focus we've had on introducing people to uh, things like deliberative pedagogy or uh, some of the organizations like Sustained Dialogue Campus Network and Essential Partners and others who are cultivating dialogue models that can be kind of taken up on campuses. I think this is a good way to think about opening the door for students so that they are ready both in those kinds of structured settings, but also just in ordinary class discussions or in, you know, discussions in the dining hall or mm -hmm whatever to be able to engage in these kinds of ways. So openmindplatform.org. Uh, you Great. can also like check out Heterodox Academy more broadly, which you can just Google. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty excited about the, the potential of these kinds of things. That sounds awesome. Yeah. I love it. Good stuff. All right. It's been wonderful, guys. Good to see you both and talk to you both. And yeah. you too as well.
Yeah, and just a reminder to always communicate with us. Um, we would love your ideas for future topics, guests, uh, critiques of what our voices sound like. Just kidding. I don't want that at all. But please um, weigh in if it's pitching or potluck. Oh, I'm yeah, weigh in. Pitching, potluck. Do you call it something else? Um, let us know. We'll start the great next great internet controversy over that. Uh, yeah, we can be reached at uh, podcast.compact.org or on social media with hashtag compact nation pod. And don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, rate us, review us, tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell uh, everybody at the next potluck or pigeon. That's right. <laughs> okay. I'm going to stop now. <laughs> or bridge, All right. <laughs> it can be addictive to keep saying that potluck or pigeon. <laughs> it's pretty fun. Okay. All right. Have a great day. All right. Bye. Season two of the Compact Nation podcast is produced by Naval Mahdi for the Campus Compact headquarters in Boston, Massachusetts, and its 1,100 colleges and universities around the globe. All rights reserved. Learn more about Campus Compact at compact.org. The hosts of the Compact Nation podcast are Emily J. Shields, J.R. Jameson, and Andrew Seligson. Recommendations for guests, topics, or general questions can be sent to podcast at compact.org or join the conversation on Twitter at hashtag CompactNationPod. The Compact Nation podcast is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Don't forget to subscribe and rate us.